Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every single person around this administration, when asked a direct question about contacts with Russians, has lied about it. There have been a lot of Russian operatives, a lot of Russian oligarchs who have been involved with the president. But if you're in President Trump's position, who he was as a businessman, a guy who was bankrupt at least four times, you don't have a lot of lending options. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who doesn't like national monuments unless they're to him, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So the Trump propaganda line has shifted again. No collusion is out. Collusion isn't illegal, is in. Here's a timeline of the positions on the Russian scandal taken by Trump, his spokespeople, and Sean Hannity. But I repeat myself. The first line, which lasted from July 2016 until February of this year, was that the Trump campaign had no contact with Russia. In February, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was still saying, this is a non-story because to the best of our knowledge, no contacts took place. That line broke down in March, with news reports about all the contacts between Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak and Jared Kushner, Michael Flynn, Jeff Sessions, Carter Page, and on and on. The line that replaced it was contact, but no collusion. Sure, there were lots of meetings with the Russians now that we think about it, but we didn't do anything with them. That line lasted until July, and the revelation of Don Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with Russians offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. The new third line, which went from July through the end of the summer, was, we were just collusion curious. What politician wouldn't want to sample imported dirt about his opponents? And then the fourth line, which really got going in October and November with just fake news, fake news, fake news. There was collusion by the Clintons. And now that seems to be giving way to a fifth official Trump line, which emerged just this week. Collusion isn't a crime. That's what Trump's lawyers are now saying. They also claim the president can't be guilty of obstruction of justice. When the president does it, that means it's not illegal. That was Richard Nixon's comment to David Frost after Watergate. To be honest, I'm not sure where they can take it from here. Once the president declares himself to be beyond the law, that's pretty much the end of the road. I'll be back to discuss La Faire Russe with the journalist Luke Harding, who's written the first book about it. But first, I want you to listen to these comments from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Who denies reports that he's leaving his post? Good afternoon, 
Last week, the New York Times reported that I am likely to be leaving the State Department soon and that my replacement is rumored to be Mike Pompeo. I've been instructed to let you know that this is not true and to offer some further denials of things that have recently been attributed to me. So I did not recently buy a large boat and several months worth of rations and sea navigation manuals. I did not christen the boat Sweet Freedom and have those words painted on the side. It's not true that on a recent call with the Chinese foreign minister, I was heard to say, quote, never mind the trade agreement. What do you know about using only the stars to plot a course on the open sea? It's not true that I recently sent flowers to my wife at her place of employment with a card that read, quote, just hang on a few more weeks, Renda. Soon we'll have all the time in the world and nothing but the sounds of the ocean, end quote. It's not true that I've been heard to shout, quote, this is a goddamned sinking ship and I'm getting off it, you Putin-loving autocrat, into the telephone at the end of phone calls with the president. In short, I am here at the State Department to stay, and I've given no one any reason to think otherwise. No questions at this time. C-Rex was written and performed by Steve Walting. My guest today is the journalist Luke Harding. He works for The Guardian in London. And uh, boys, he had an amazing career. He was the correspondent in Russia about a decade ago. He got kicked out and then he covered, he was at the center of The Guardian's coverage of the WikiLeaks story, of the Snowden story. And now he is covering the Trump-Russia story. His new book is Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump win. Needless to say, it's a paperback. Luke, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Thank you. Um, well, I guess the question we're doing a book like this is when to stop. I mean, amazingly, you're current through the George Papadopoulos plea bargain, which was just a month ago. But uh, how did the publisher finally rip this out of your hands? Well, so I'm, I'm published in New York by, by Sonny Mater, who's something of a kind of legend. And we had a series of conspiratorial meetings in New York and also in, in London discussing how to make this work. And of course, mindful of the fact that following Trump, it, it's it's sort of like chasing a tornado, really. Um, but when I wrote the book, I, what, I, what I wanted to do was to kind of contextualize and, and to kind of bring the Russian side of the story to this whole conversation. Uh, obviously, the American players are fairly familiar, but the Russians kind of less so. And so I, I kind of did it almost character by character, chapter by chapter. And I had to kind of rewrite a chunk um, that I'd written earlier in the year later on. And of course, when Robert Mueller, the special counsel, issued his his first round of indictments against Paul, against Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, and so on, at that point, Sonny Mater said, okay, stop, let's rush the book out. <laughs> so I, I spent the night rewriting the epilogue, sent it all off, and it was literally at the printers within a matter of days. And just one last thing, this was all in secret, nothing going by email, everything being delivered a bit sort of John le Carre style, but by, by stick with kind of handoffs and, and 
secret meetings of our own. And, and I think in the end, it, it, it worked. And we're very pleased with the outcome. Why did you need the secrecy? Why, why didn't you want anyone to know the book was coming? Well, uh, primarily because I, I've sort of been through the mincer in Russia. I mean, I was expelled from Russia in, in 2011. And the, the Kremlin took umbrage at a series of articles I wrote about, about Vladimir Putin's money, about the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, who was the, the Russian dissident poisoned in 2006 with a radioactive cup of tea. And he was the subject of my previous book. And I, I, I was my phone was hacked in the spring. I've had problems with email before. And so we were just worried that someone might take this stuff or leak this stuff or interfere with this stuff or delete this stuff. So, so we were very circumspect. You put the uh, dossier and Christopher Steele, the former MI6 officer who's the author of the so-called dossier, at the center of the story. And unlike a lot of journalists here, you take the what's in the dossier very seriously. I mean, much of the book is devoted to confirming significant portions of it. But let's just talk about Steele and the, the dossier a little bit, the outset, because there's been it, it's been received in such different ways. I mean, some publications haven't touched it. You know, I think Bob Woodward here called it trash, said journalists shouldn't have anything to do with it. In general, it's been treated at the very least skeptically on the assumption that, well, while Christopher Steele may be, have done everything in good faith, there's a lot of rumor and things passed on and, and, and great parts of it almost certainly are not completely true. That's not your approach to it. Why not? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, I'm, I met with Chris Steele in December um, of last year, about four weeks before BuzzFeed published the dossier on January the 10th. And, and secondly, I've, I've talked to talked extensively to kind of friends of his and asked those same questions. How can we take it seriously and so on? And and the answer I get from from Steele is is basically to point out that he is a professional with with a, a long and credible track record. He spent 22 years working in British intelligence for MI6, three of them as a kind of junior uh, spy in Soviet Moscow, where he, he saw the collapse um, of communism firsthand, stood meters away from the tank where Boris Yeltsin famously in uh, 1991 denounced a coup by the KGB. And he's someone who understands the Russian bureaucracy and its Soviet predecessor, and also who has kind of secret sources. And, and this is the key point, is that you talk to Steele about this, and he sort of says that the sources behind his dossier were the same sources that he used in previous reporting, which had nothing to do with Donald Trump. Primarily, for example, uh, a series of uh, reports that he he authored after 2014 on the war in Ukraine, uh, which were well received by by U.S. intelligence and were shared in the state inside the State Department right up until John Kerry. In other words, and and those sources were were, were right about what was going on in Ukraine and Putin's kind of covert war there. Logically, it doesn't make sense for those sources to then be completely wrong about about Donald Trump. And and of course, everything that we we now know that's happened over the last year. Uh, has, in my view, sort of further confirmed what, what he wrote. I mean, Steele, it, it sounds like he, he took this on as a job, and in a lot of ways it became a cause, right? I mean, he, he has his own consulting firm and works for pay for clients, who many of whom are corporations, and he was hired by another consultant, this fusion GPS firm in, in Washington, who which seems that it'll work happily for any side that will pay them. But So he was hired to, to compile this, uh, I think he probably did not know that it was people connected to Hillary Clinton who were paying for the dossier, at least by the time he got to working on that part of it. But then he, what he found made him sort of go beyond the client work, right? 
Well, well, that, that that's correct. He he didn't know who the ultimate client was. He he merely in in spring of 2016 initially began looking at Paul Manafort, Trump's sort of soon to be campaign manager, and and then the kind of broader question of of what links does Donald Trump have to Russia, specifically financial money, etc. And he. He basically funneled out this this question to his various secret sources and then waited for the replies. And the replies, when he got them, he said he told he told friends who who I've spoken to were hair raising. You know, what what one one quote from from Steele, um, reading this stuff is a life changing experience. And um, what his sources were telling him in Moscow was that essentially that there had been a kind of collusional relationship between Team Trump and and between. Russia and uh, Russian intelligence going back at least five years with a kind of transactional arrangement where the sort of Trump camp would supply the Kremlin with with useful tidbits of information about the activities of Russian oligarchs in the United States, bearing in mind that Putin is a very paranoid person. He wants to know everything about what billionaires are doing, whether they're plotting against him and so on. And in return, the, the Russians were kind of helping and furthering Trump's political career. And, and that reached a kind of superlative stage last year when the Kremlin, this is what US intelligence said, hacked Democratic Party emails and they were dumped out via Julian Assange and WikiLeaks at moments of maximum embarrassment against Hillary Clinton. Now, th- that is the kind of dossier thesis. And and I th- I think, of course, there are reservations about it. It's It's raw intelligence. But I think Basically, that is what happened. Let me bring up two issues with it that people have raised that are interesting. One is that the collusion theory gives Putin too much credit, that Russian intelligence involves a great deal of bumbling and incompetence and internal politics. And this story almost portrays them as as geniuses and master manipulators, and that that's not really how things work. What do you say to that? I Well, I, I, I broadly agree with kind of with that kind of view, I mean, Putin is not Superman. He he's not someone. He's not a kind of evil Uber Gremlin who sits in a cave and flicks over buttons and presses red switches and makes things happen in a kind of minutely controlled way. He is an opportunist who takes advantage of, of the situation um, before him. And and w- what he found in the United States, what was a, a deeply kind of polarized situation, and with one candidate, Donald Trump who was a kind of effective vehicle for discrediting Hillary Clinton, whom, by the way, Putin thought would win the election. And um, what was kind of unleashed was actually relatively low tech, phishing emails, rattling the doors of of servers, seeing seeing what you could get, plus a kind of classic um, espionage operation, um, similar, not dissimilar to the ones that, that Putin himself ran during the Cold War years, in which Russian intelligence officers tried to get very close to Trump's in a circle, and, and let's face it, didn't meet very much resistance. We now know that Russian assets met with George Papadopoulos, um, allegedly, that's from Mueller's indictment, that a Russian lawyer bearing gifts took a meeting um, in Trump Tower with Donald Trump Jr., with Paul Manafort, with Jared Kushner. And we know that Michael Cohen, Trump's personal lawyer, fired off a, a sort of begging email, basically, to Dmitry Peskov, Trump's press secretary, asking for help to build a tower, and and, and so on. And so... It's not that Putin is a genius, it's that he's very good at exploiting the weakness of the other side. You do a terrific job making this into a narrative, making, telling the story around the people and the, the theory of the collusion. But, but another problem with it is there are too many good theories. 
I mean, there's collusion via Paul Manafort, via Carter Page, via Papadopoulos, via Michael Flynn, via the, the Trump Tower meeting you were just talking about. And uh, it's sort of overdetermined. Well, you could say it's overdetermined, and it's, they're not mutually exclusive. On the other hand, there's sort of too many good theories for all of them to be true, and it points maybe to a kind of wishful thinking. Well, I, I mean, I, I completely reject that. Uh, I think that's wrong. And I think it's that that argument is, is based on almost complete ignorance of Russian and Soviet methods. And spe- you know, speaking as someone who, who knows the Russian language, who, who lived there, who suffered from kind of break-ins at my, my family apartment where, where I was living with my wife and kids. And we had kind of, we found out for the British Embassy that we had kind of bugs in our walls and, and, and video as, as, as well. I think it's quite possible to be empirical about, about what the Kremlin does and what it doesn't do, and also about its broader geopolitical objectives. So I don't think we should get too focused on process, how the dossier came about, who paid for it, or let ourselves be distracted by different theories. I I think we just need to be kind of evidential um, in the same way that Robert Mueller is. And let's face it, we've had four people indicted already. If there was nothing to see here, I don't think Donald Trump would be so terrified by this story, by, by wouldn't so tweet so remorselessly and be waging the, the ongoing campaign he is against the FBI. There is a version of the truth, or, or the truth, let's call it. Some of it is known, some of it we, we have yet to find out, and that the Russian half is very well buried. But I think we will get there. So put another way, which theory does Donald Trump have the most to fear from? Or I, I guess I should say, which uh, potentially cooperating witness does he have the most to fear from? Is it Michael Flynn or do you think it's still Manafort or maybe someone else we haven't heard from yet? Well, that's it. There's a sort of there's a kind of parallel answer to this. I mean, he's got quite a lot of fear from Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn was a senior advisor to the campaign from late 2015 onwards. Meanwhile, zipping off to Moscow for this this dinner meeting for a Russia Today gala where he sat next to Vladimir Putin. Paul Manafort knows everything, but so far as I can tell, I think is being pretty kind of stalwart. And the the game that Paul Manafort is playing, it seems to me, is to to angle for a presidential pardon by by getting his lawyer to say there's no collusion, there's nothing to see here, this is all fake, in the hope that he might be absolved of all of this. He's hanging tough at the moment in the Nixon terminology, yeah. He's hanging tough, and, and also I, I I met him, I mean, I have a whole chapter about, about what he did in Ukraine, which is where I first encountered him back in 2008. And I would say of, of the Trump team, he's probably the cleverest, but he's also someone who's utterly un- unscrupulous and immoral. And we, we've seen in the past he's denied things which have turned out to be true. And then he just kind of modulates his falsehood, I would say, I would allege, to suit the circumstances. But the person that Donald Trump really has to fear isn't an American, it's a Russian, and it's Vladimir Putin, because Putin will know precisely to what degree Trump has or hasn't colluded, not just now, but also historically. He'll have been appraised of the, the KGB operation in the 1980s when Trump was invited to Soviet Moscow to, to talk about real estate possibilities and hotels and when basically the Soviet government issued the invitation and took care of all of the arrangements and no doubt would have bugged him when he was staying in a hotel in Red Square. And the the, the exquisiteness of Putin's position is that he can t- turn the dial up or t- turn the dial down. And what you have to ask yourself, I mean, people of the left or of the right who are skeptical about the whole kind of collusion notion is is, I wonder what their answer is to the question of why is Donald Trump so consistently nice about Vladimir Putin when he's so rude about practically 
everybody else on the planet. I mean, how, how does one explain that? And you've always, you, you take the, the relatively simple explanation of compromise, that, that Putin has stuff on him that Trump doesn't want out. Yeah, Putin has a lot of stuff on him. I mean, there'll, there'll be a dossier on Trump going back to, certainly, I would say, to the 1970s when, when Trump married Ivana, a woman from communist Czechoslovakia. We, we know from declassified files in Prague that the, the Czechoslovak secret police kept a very close eye on the Trumps in Manhattan, that they had regular chats with Trump's then father-in-law. Then this kind of, this invitation, which I think is crucial, in 1987, which was arranged by Interis, the Soviet state travel agency, which is, which is basically the KGB. And that's what defectors, KGB defectors have told me. Uh, and they bring Trump over. And it's a kind of look-see. It seems to me, and to my sources, a kind of classic cultivation operation. Uh, and Trump certainly met uh, the requirements that the KGB was looking for back then in terms of personality, that they circulated a sort of secret questionnaire uh, for, for KGB residents abroad. That's the kind of the head of station, like the sort of CIA chief. And the people they were interested in were, were vain, were, were narcissistic, were greedy, were, were poor analysts, were suggestible. That, that really is Donald Trump on every single measure. Um, so there will be a huge file on him, supplemented with more recent material, including from 2013, um, and a lot of technical stuff collected by the FSB, including, no doubt, video of, of Trump in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, uh, as per the Steele dossier. Now, whether, whether Trump watched an exotic show featuring prostitutes <laughs> or whether he went, went to bed early with a French novel, we don't know. But, but you don't dismiss you, can, you don't you, dismiss you can, what's in the dossier, the the so-called P tape. I mean you 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 think that is plausible. It's it's what the FSB and the KGB does. It's been doing it for decades. And th this is what I'm saying about about a lot of people who who don't like this stuff are kind of behaving or thinking a contextually um that there's a huge literature of, of KGB entrapment measures. There's even a name for the, the beautiful young women who were sent to seduce Western diplomats, American diplomats in the 60s and 70s. They were called swallows, rather poetic. I, I've talked to former intelligence officers who, who have traveled on, on an empty Trans-Siberian Express train and, and fi find you know a 25-year-old model in the, in, the, in the bunk above, very flirtatious, keen to practice her English. I mean, th this has been going on forever. There's nothing new about it. The, on the only question is not whether there's a tape, but what Trump did. And how could that actually be used? I mean, I can un understand how that would produce pressure on Donald Trump to act in a certain way, assuming, of course, that he's not just acting that way out of pure belief, which is also possible. But sure. the, the, the FSB can't release that tape because it would be clear that they had released it. I mean, they at that, at that point, they're acknowledging spying on everybody who comes to Russia, which, as you say, they do. But they, I mean, is there, would there be any kind of precedent for them actually using that kind of material by making it public? Yeah. Yeah, they've used it all the time. I mean, against Russians. Against, 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 against Russians. But the point is, it's, it's, it, this is one pressure point. There are other pressure, pressure points as well. But, but th th that, that it may exist, of course, is embarrassing. But it gives, obviously, Putin the upper hand. But there's also the whole kind of financial question about what financial deals Trump may have cut in the past, especially when, when he was in kind of a tight spot in, in terms of cash. And, and when Trump says no deals, no loans... Uh, with Russia, nothing. That that's kind of formally true because, despite trying for thirty years, he never managed to buy to build his hotel in Moscow. But the question is, 
the reverse, how much right. Russian money went into the Trump organization. We, we know from 2008 that Donald Trump Jr. said we have a, a disproportionate number of our clients come from Russia and that be, there's been lots of analysis by Reuters and others showing huge numbers of, of Russian passport holders buying Trump real estate, some of it in branded properties. And, and the, the big question for, for Robert Mueller is how much of this was money laundering and how much of this may have been surreptitious assistance to Donald Trump himself. So if the collusion theory is right, the Russians have, well, first succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, but then in another way, it's completely backfired on them. Because because this has become so public, Trump can't help them in the way he might otherwise have done. He can't, he can't undo the sanctions. He can't be as openly friendly as he might otherwise be. In fact, he can't be as openly friendly as another American president, not Hillary Clinton, but some other newly elected president might be in trying to establish better relations with Russia because he's under this cloud of suspicion of collusion. Well, I mean, that's a good point. And I think I think the scorecard for Putin is 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 mixed, but it's 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 broadly in his favor. Yes, you're right. I mean, it looked at one point when Trump became uh, sort of was elected president that that he would lift sanctions on Russia, which is what Putin wants. And of course, this scandal exploded to such a degree that's become politically impossible. And I think, like I said, Putin expected Trump to lose. Trump won. And that was a kind of good outcome. But I think the Kremlin in general has a poor understanding of, of American institutional politics. It tends to think that the US is like Russia and, and didn't really factor in the fact that there's Congress, there's a kind of vociferous media, that there are, are senators looking over their shoulders and looking at the, 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 the poll numbers, uh, and that Trump Trump's room for maneuver is relatively limited. So, so he didn't get sanctions. That's a kind of ongoing disappointment. But what he has got is, is an America that is hyperpolarized that that is being is being sort of stirred up practically every morning by by Trump on issues of 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 race ethnicity gender just with a kind of a sort of broiling almost culture war if you like and and that of course is all to Putin's advantage because it means with, with America sort of self-focused and more more or less absent from the international stage that Putin can do what he wants in the Middle East, in Syria, in Ukraine. He can he can seek to to influence election results in Europe, like he did in the U.S. last year, and he, he's in a kind of fantastically strong position. And what's more, he knows it. Do you have a sense of whether Chris Steele is cooperating in any way with the Mueller investigation? Well, I, that's an interesting question. Uh, let, let's put it this way: I, I think it would be it would be incredible if if people from Mueller's team had not spoken to Chris Steele. <laughs> and uh, Steele's in an interesting position now. I mean, he's just sort of waiting for vindication. If your if your book is is mostly right, what uh, what is the piece of evidence or the shoe that could drop that would really make the people who were very skeptical of Steele say, "All right, we now have to acknowledge that he basically had it right." Well, I, I mean, the, there are more shoes than fit on a, a millipede. But uh, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me most, obviously, after after the legal document we got from Miller on on Friday of last week, it is that that clearly Flynn talked to it seems to Jared Kushner to to get a, a, a approval for what you might call a kind of highly accommodationist policy towards Russia um, to to stop Putin from reciprocating when Obama kicked out. Russian diplomats by kicking out American diplomats. But the question is, is Kushner the, the great brain behind this operation? Or is, of course, Kushner taking instruction from his dad-in-law and that actually the person driving this, this the, these back channels, these meetings is Trump himself? And so 
I think that that is very perilous um, for for Trump. But I also think the kind of whole financial side is 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 very perilous. It was quite interested story by Bloomberg this morning out of Frankfurt. The fact that Deutsche Bank, which has lent three hundred million dollars to Donald Trump, has finally under subpoena turned over these records to 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 Mueller and to the special counsel's office because we, we've been asking Deutsche Bank for a year to try and shed some light on on why it lent so much money to Donald Trump, given the fact that in 2008, Trump... He, he stiffed them and on, sued them, yeah. Defaulted on a $45 million loan, stiffed them with, with the most ridiculous and surreal writ that, I, that I've, I've ever seen, basically saying that Deutsche Bank co-created the financial crisis and therefore he wasn't <laughs> going to pay them anything and they owed him $3 billion. Uh, and and we, we call that chutzpah like, in New York. Yes. Well, it, it's it's beyond that. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk to people in Deutsche Bank. Uh, I, I don't know if I can use expletives on your podcast. But when I said you, you may, uh, it, I, I may. Okay. <laughs> well, you said you know, is this normal for a bank to do this? And, and one Deutsche Bank source told us, "Are you fucking kidding me? It's not normal. It's highly abnormal." And Deutsche Bank lent him more money to pay off the money he defaulted onto Deutsche Bank, a different division. And meanwhile, while all this was going on, Deutsche Bank Moscow had essentially been captured by the, the Russian security services, the FSB, and was laundering $10 billion for VIP clients in Moscow into the US financial system. Now, now we know this because there's been a, a report by the, the New York Department of Financial Services that, that fined Deutsche Bank about $450 million for this money laundering scheme. So you have money laundering in Moscow and very curious lending patterns to Donald Trump in New York from the same bank. So there's that, uh, but there's a ton of other stuff as well. I mean, en enough to keep Mueller and his team busy for a very long time. Well, we're looking forward to collusion too. But in the meantime, uh, I recommend Collusion, which is Luke Harding's new book. Luke, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Our sketch, C-Rex, was written and performed by Steve Waltine. And hey, for those of you who are already addicted to Slow Burn, the new podcast Slate is doing about Watergate, the second episode is up. Check it out. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>